This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the parts of your word that are encouraging, that are happy, that we love to read. We thank you for the parts of your word that are more difficult more painful. And Father, as we look at one of those this morning, would you guide us? Father, help the tone, help the focus to be what would honor you. Help this to be something that would draw all of our hearts closer to you, that would cause us to stand in awe of who you are, and would cause us to change our lives by your grace in the way that we need to change in the face of these truths. Guide me, please. Help me to share this in a way that honors you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me, the book of Revelation, chapter 14. As you turn there, take your mind's eye with me to gaze at a desolate landscape. It is the earth that you know, but much has changed. The Earth's population has been decreased by 25%. So in other words, one out of every four of your friends, family, and acquaintances are gone. Earthquakes, meteors, hailstorms, and widespread wildfires have left a once green landscape bare and scarred, a rock-strewn desert. There's no green grass only smoldering stubble. A third of the world's fresh water has been corrupted, leaving drinking water in high demand. The sun no longer shines throughout the day, but only for two-thirds of the day, which alone has had a profound impact on human, animal, and plant life. The world is a barren wasteland, and mankind is hanging on for dear life. Life has become about survival and little else. And then in that setting, an angel comes flying overhead, crying out this message, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. That is the earth as it stands at the end of Revelation chapter 8, all as a result of God's judgment. The level of destruction is staggering. The extent of the plagues is unprecedented, and there is more to come. And all that destruction raises a question in our minds that we began to consider last time we were in the book of Revelation together. Uh, We are taking time to consider this book of Revelation and to learn what we can about the character of Christ from this awe-inspiring book. But any honest student of Scripture will quickly notice that for the vast majority of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 20, the main theme is judgment. At least 10 times in those passages, there is clear reference to the wrath of God that is being poured out. And we see with stunning clarity the results when this wrath is released. So it raises the question, why so much wrath? 
Why such harsh judgment? For many, that kind of destructive anger from God doesn't fit with the sketch they have in their mind of who Christ is. There's far too much wrath for our modern sensibilities. But this is God's word. And so we know that this is true. We know that there must be a reason. And last time we saw one of the reasons for the wrath being poured out. One of the reasons is that God is unleashing it in response to the suffering of his faithful servants. He is avenging the death of his martyrs. He is making right what is wrong. But that's not the only reason, and it's not the biggest reason either. We're going to consider the most significant reason today for all of that angry destruction, all of that wrath, all of that judgment. But as we get ready to do that, I want to give you two warnings. First of all, and please hear me, you may find what we'll consider this morning hard to swallow. You may have trouble accepting the truths that we'll see in God's word, but Revelation 14 is just as true as John 3.16, as Psalm 23, as Philippians 4.13, as Romans 8.28. We don't get to choose what God is like. The wrath and judgment is very much a part of the biblical picture of God, and we are in danger if we dismiss that. The second warning is this. This is going to be a somber message. I don't think there's any way to preach these truths in the right way and for it not to be a somber message. But I'm not trying to discourage or depress you this morning. I do pray that this message will cause you to give some serious thought to some important matters in your own life. And so... Let us be serious this morning. And I believe that that the Lord can guide us in that. Before we read from Revelation 14, I want to give you a quick overview of what happens leading up to that chapter. So last time we were in Revelation, together we were in Revelation chapter 6. And I know some of you may not have been here for that time, but let me give you a quick overview of what happens in Revelation 6 to 13, so we'll know where we're at as we enter chapter 14. Uh, Over the course of those chapters, seven seals have been loosed on the book of God's judgment, and six trumpets have sounded. And with the breaking of those seals, with the blowing of those trumpets, plague after plague has been unleashed, and there is more judgment yet to come. In chapter 11, we met two witnesses who proclaim God's word. Their message is rejected, and the wrath continues. Then in chapters 12 and 13, we see Satan and his servants and their desperate desire to oppose the work of God. And then, with that as the context, here we come to Revelation 14. Look with me at the first words of that chapter. John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. This is the lamb the lamb we met earlier in the book. This is Jesus Christ, and he has set foot on earth. The end is nearing. The lamb is bringing with him a final wave of wrath that will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. 
But as this judgment is unleashed, we come to understand the reason for judgment. In verses 9 and 10, an angel declares this message. The angel says, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So notice the reason for wrath that we're given in these verses. The wrath is falling on those who have the mark of the beast. Now, we could get off onto a lot of different rabbit trails once we introduce the idea of the mark of the beast. There's a lot of superstition that surrounds this idea and the number 666. I remember when I was in high school, I worked at Chick-fil-A. And uh, sometimes I would ring up an order and it would come to a total of $6.66. Now that shows you, it's been a few years ago that I, that I worked at Chick-fil-A. But, <laughs> but sometimes I'd ring up an order and that would be the total and the person would say, I'm sorry, I have to add something else to my order. <laughs> I'm serious. There's that much superstition that surrounds that number. So this is an idea, even for people that don't know the Lord, that's, that's in our culture, and that people are very, very um, wary about this number many times. There's also a lot of conjecture about how this mark will be manifested, how people will receive the mark. And this morning I want to avoid either getting off into superstition or conjecture. I'd like to focus on what God's word reveals to us about this mark, because I think we need to understand it. If this is the reason that wrath is being poured out on these people, then what is this mark? What does it signify? And we find the answer to that question in Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to give a quick overview of that chapter. We'll, we'll read a couple of verses specifically together. Um, but in that chapter, it tells us about the rise of the beast. We are told that he's given authority and power by Satan himself, and that the people of earth begin to worship both this beast and Satan. The beast openly blasphemes God and his servants. He makes war with the people of God. And yet, despite all that, Revelation 13, 8 tells us, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So despite all that's true about the beast, the Bible tells us that everyone on earth is going to worship him, except those whose names are in the book of life. Widespread worship of this beast who has received his power straight from Satan himself, and who is giving his allegiance to Satan himself. Well, there's a second beast then that arises who encourages the people of earth in their worship of the first beast. And Revelation 13, 16, and 17 tell us that the second beast causes all people, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save that he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And that next verse is the one that tells us that number, the, the 666. But think about what this mark signifies. 
However exactly it's going to happen, people are going to receive this willingly. This is not being, they're not being tricked into this. They're not being fooled into somehow they don't know what they're getting into. No, they're receiving this mark willingly. It is an outward demonstration of an inward heart condition. These are worshipers of the beast. Think about that. They're worshiping the beast. And either directly or indirectly, worshiping Satan himself. They are idolaters. They are rebels against God, pledging their allegiance to one who is openly blaspheming God. And that's going to be the majority of the population of earth at that time, receiving this mark in their hand or in their forehead. Willing to have an open demonstration of the fact that I am a worshiper of the beast. That's what the mark signifies. So why so much wrath? It's because these are rebels. They have rejected the rightful king, and they have spit in his face by worshiping and serving his sworn enemy. That's why wrath is being poured out on this group of people. In Matthew 21, Jesus shared a parable. He told about a landowner. And this landowner planted a vineyard. He hedged it in. He built a wine press and a tower for them to be able to keep watch over the vineyard. And then he took a trip. And so he turned the vineyard over to some caretakers and charged them with caring for his vineyard in his absence. Well, Time came around for the harvest, and as the owner of the vineyard, as the one who had planted it, as the one it belonged to, he sent servants to these caretakers to say, I want some of the harvest. I want some of the fruit from the vineyard. It's his due, after all. It belongs to him. He sends these servants. The caretakers take the servants and kill them. He never hears any word back, so he sends more servants. Same message. Give us some of the fruit for the master. And they do the same. They kill those servants as well. And finally, the master says, I'm going to send my son, my heir. They will be reminded who really owns the vineyard. They'll be reminded of who has authority over what's going on. If I send my heir then they'll say, he means business. He sends his son, and Jesus tells us in the parable, in Matthew 21, verses 38 and 39, but when the husbandmen, or the caretakers, saw the son, they said on, among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. Then Jesus asks this provoking question. When the Lord thereof, therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now Jesus had a specific application for that story to the Jews of his time. But is it not a telling illustration of the history of humanity? God has put mankind on earth to fulfill his purposes. 
He has faithfully sent messengers to remind us of His truth. And guess what? He sent His Son. And what did we do? We spit in His face and murdered Him in cold blood. The vast majority of mankind has utterly refused to recognize the Lordship of Christ, has laughed at His messengers, and has continued to occupy a world we do not own as if it belonged to us, the balance of the world is living in blissful rebellion against God. One day the symbol of that rebellion will be a mark in the forehead or in the hand. And that mark will be a fist shaken in the face of God. It will be an outward expression of a heart that has completely rejected God and his authority. That's why God's wrath will fall. That's why the judgment will be so severe. Take a look with me, please, at verses 10 and 11 to see the severity of the judgment. And here, again, I'll remind you, this is talking, as we begin verse 10, this is talking about those who have this mark and who have worshipped the beast. The same, it says in verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Later in this chapter, God uses the imagery of a wine press, of the grapes being gathered, being cast into the wine press, and being crushed. It is a euphemistic metaphor, but it still makes me shudder to think about it. That's the severity of judgment that is falling. God's judgment is going to be incredibly harsh. It's going to be staggeringly final. But is it too harsh? Is God unreasonable? Is God unfair? Well, we could spend a long time trying to grapple with that question biblically. But I want to share two truths with you today that help us think about the severity of the judgment. First truth is that God is the creator. He made me. He made you. He made this earth. He made everything we know. As creator, whether or not we acknowledge it, God gets to call the shots. We owe him everything, and he owes us nothing. Not even an explanation. If God says, this is how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. Whether or not you or I even understand, God has the right to run his universe as he sees fit. He doesn't have to answer to us. He doesn't have to live according to our standards. We could stop there, and that's good enough. He's the creator. He owns it all. He gets to call the shots. 
But there's another truth here. Secondly, recognize that these people have made their decision. These individuals are going to their eternal death, not because they tried really hard, but they just couldn't quite attain to God's standard. No, they will go to their eternal death because their lives asked for it. They're sinners who hate God. And they love themselves and they love their sin. They are rebels who are willing to shake their fists in the face of God all the way into everlasting flames. And that is a sad truth, but it is the truth. If you doubt that, consider the story of mankind as portrayed in Romans 1. We could read through the whole chapter, but for sake of time, I'll just hit a few highlights. Romans 1.21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Romans 1.25, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. And then verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Did you notice all that they knew? They knew who God was. They knew the truth. They even knew what was going to happen to them because of their sin. They knew the judgment of God. They knew that sin brings death. They knew all that, and yet they worshipped the creature instead of the creator. They refused to give him glory. They took pleasure in their own sin and in the sin of the others around them. You and I are not born wanting to follow God. We are born wanting to worship and serve the all-important I. And when Jesus tells us to lay down our lives and take up our crosses and follow him, we scoff and we laugh and we spit in his face and we scream, crucify him! And it is only by the grace of God that response can be any different. Revelation 14 does paint a very sober picture. The severity of the judgment here is overwhelming. But back up with me to verse 6 and notice an escape from judgment. Revelation 14, 6 and 7, the Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And I'm grateful for these verses. I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me to read about God's wrath boiling out, flowing over mankind. I know it's true, I know it's just, but I don't enjoy reading about wrath and judgment. And in the middle of all that, I'm grateful to see 
that the goodness of God is not swallowed up by his wrath. And it never will be. God is still good. He is still gracious. He is still merciful. Don't lose sight of that. The God who judges is also a God of mercy. In the face of this impending destruction, he calls out with one last declaration of the gospel. John 1.9 tells us that Jesus is the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I believe that God, by one means or another, shines his light into every life. And if you know Christ, you're a part of that. Many reject that light. But don't let this dark picture we've sketched of the wickedness of man make you say, well, what's the point of trying to be a light in such a dark world? If everyone's going to reject anyway, if so many people are going to refuse to hear the truth, why even try? Why don't we just give up on the gospel? Well, God has not given up on the gospel. He desires to use you and me as vessels of mercy to carry the light to others. God is still showing his grace to repentant sinners. God, as we are reminded with our missions theme, he brought light out of darkness physically. He created this light. He is still shining the light of the gospel into dark hearts. And he desires us to be faithful as part of that work. And one day, as Revelation 14 shows us, God will send one last messenger to declare his gospel. He will offer one last opportunity because God is merciful. God loves to show mercy. But one day, the window of mercy will close forever on unrepentant sinners. Jesus Christ is the judge of rebels. Now fast forward with me to Revelation 20. When the events of Revelation 20 occur, Jesus will sit on a white throne and he will make one final judgment. The Bible says in verse 12 of that chapter, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Judgment is coming. Are you ready? I want to leave you with three warnings this morning. The first is a warning for unbelievers. If you do not know Christ, here's the warning for you. Don't be deceived. 
2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan is actively working to blind the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He is actively trying to deceive you and get you to not believe the truth, to not let the light of Christ into your mind and heart. Don't be deceived. Some of you may have spent your time this morning making up excuses not to believe what I just shared from God's word. Perhaps it sounds just too fantastic, too far-fetched. Perhaps it's because you'd say something along the lines of, well, I don't like to think of God in that way. Well, I want to tell you in straightforward love this morning that your imagination of what something is like has no bearing on how it actually is. God is who he says he is, regardless of what I think or what I wish him to be. Recognize that judgment is coming. The only escape is having your name in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, gave up his innocent life to atone for your sinful life. He offers free salvation from sin to those who will place their faith in him. So receive his simple salvation today. Don't be deceived. Whatever your excuse is to not respond, recognize it as a lie from Satan. And then two warnings for believers this morning. First of all, don't be Jonah. Now let me explain myself. All right? we, we know generally what happened to Jonah, um, but uh, we know the first part of the story best. Uh, but after the whole whale's belly episode, Jonah did end up obeying God's initial instruction, and he went to the city of Nineveh to preach. If you don't know the story, read the book of Jonah. It's a great story, a lot of wonderful lessons there. But he goes to Nineveh to preach, and his message is simple. It is, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Straightforward message of judgment. But something happened that Jonah was hoping wouldn't happen. The people repented. They responded to the message. And because they repented, God decided not to send judgment. And Jonah said, yay for God's mercy. No, I wish we could say that's how he responded. Jonah threw a temper tantrum. He couldn't stand the fact that the wicked sinners in Nineveh had been spared Jonah relished the thought of God's judgment, and he whined about God's mercy, which is silly because Jonah wouldn't have even been alive if it weren't for God's mercy at that point. So don't be Jonah. Sometimes we as believers can look at passages like what we looked at today, and we can say, oh boy, they're going to get what's coming to them. All those wicked sinners out there, they're going to be judged, just you wait. And we can revel in that like Jonah did. But let me ask you this. When Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem, and he looked out over it, and he thought about the destruction that was coming, how did he respond? 
he wept. He wept over the city. His heart was broken. I believe that should be our response when we come to passages like this. Our heart should be broken for the lost. And we should be encouraged to faithfully preach the message of judgment. Not to rub it in their faces, but to warn them. And to let them know there is a way of escape. So don't be Jonah. And then another warning for us in response to these truths. And that is, don't be Samson. You might say, what does Samson have to do with this? Well, stick with me here for a minute. A quick look at Samson's life might make some people think he had the best of both worlds. After all, Samson had God on his side, right? He had superhuman strength given to him by God. So clearly God was on his side. But you look at Samson's life, and he also got to indulge his pleasures. He lived a lustful life. So you might look at his life and you might think, he got the balance right, right? Okay, he got enough of God and enough of sin, and he kept the balance right to make him a happy man. I'm afraid that a lot of professing Christians today, it's exactly what we're trying to do. I'm going to get enough of God and enough of sin. I'll keep God on my side. You know, I go to church sometimes. I read my Bible sometimes. I do enough of that stuff to keep God on my side. But then I also live a life that indulges my own pleasure. And if I keep the balance right, I'll be a happy person. I'll get the best of both worlds. Well, Samson was not a balanced man. He was torn and he was tortured by his double life. He was a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Samson did not take sin seriously and it destroyed him. Was there pleasure in sin for a season? Was it his downfall? Yeah. And one message that I think comes through very clearly in the passage we've looked at today is that God takes sin seriously. What about you? Don't be Samson. Stop playing with sin. See it as God sees it, as an act of rebellion against God, as a fist shaken in his face, as an action of enmity against the God we say we serve. Don't play with sin. Christ is the judge of rebels. And I know this has been a sobering message this morning. It's been very sobering considering these truths. But we all need to be sobered sometimes. We all need to come face to face with these truths, and I plead with you to take seriously what we've considered this morning. I believe that's a big part of why God gave us the book of Revelation. So we would take coming judgment seriously. Let's pray. Our Father, again, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not sugarcoat cover over these truths. 
Lord, you tell things as they are. You make it clear what those who rebel against you can expect. Father, I pray for those here this morning or those watching by live stream who do not know you as Savior, break their hearts with this truth today. Whatever the barriers are to them being willing to accept these truths, would you break those barriers down? Help them to see the urgency of their need for Christ. And Father, those of us who are believers, help us to look at coming judgment in the right way. Help it to sober us. Help us not to rejoice in it like Jonah did. Help us to weep over what is coming for those we know who do not know you. And Father, help us take sin seriously. To live pure lives, to live lives that please you. To live in light of what we've looked at today. Guide us now as we respond to the work you've done in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.